you have your Bibles and want to turn to Matthew 6, that would be your best shot at following along in a sermon that I'm going to be referencing a lot of different places in the Bible. But I want to share with you something that kind of triggered me this week. I heard something that I didn't want to hear. Uh, I, someone, someone looked at me and said, watching baseball is boring. I, I was really triggered when I heard that. I couldn't believe it. Like, how, I, you want to say that again in my face? You know, that's kind of how I felt whenever I heard that because baseball's my jam. Like, I loved growing up playing baseball, and I loved watching baseball, still love watching baseball. I love the complexity of the sport, the strategy behind it. I mean, the difficulty level of it. They say the hardest thing to do in all of sports is to hit a major league fastball. And if you see a major league fastball, like, wow, yeah, they're probably right on that one. Like, the odds are pretty low, even for guys that are incredibly skilled. Even seeing the athletes that play baseball make it fascinating to me. It's, it's one of the only sports where you get this wide variety of physiques. You know, you get like a guy like Aaron Judge on the Yankees, who's, uh, I wrote his stats down, he's six foot seven, 282 pounds of solid steel mass, right? This guy like eats nails for breakfast. He's gigantic. He's, a, he's part giant, part human. It's just, it's fun to see some guy that's like freakishly big hitting those home runs. You know, it reminds me of like the steroid era back in the 90s in baseball. It was entertaining nonetheless. <laughs> Moral, well, we can have that discussion later, but you know, it's, it was at least entertaining. But then you also have guys like Bartolo Colon. If you're a baseball fan, you know who that is. This guy's in his mid-40s. He also weighs 286 pounds or whatever, and, but he's 5'11". <laughs> and he looks like he uh, drinks a case of Bush Light before bed every night, you know. He, he does not look like an athlete, but he has this golden arm. And he has this understanding of the game that he, he's going to be a Hall of Famer. He's more likely to be a Hall of Famer than Aaron Judge is. I mean, it's, it's fascinating. So how can you not like watching baseball? There's so many reasons, but it's so true. It's a common thing to hear today where people are like, man, I just don't, I don't get it. I, I, I just get bored out of my mind when a baseball game's on, so I don't watch it. And, you know, that's probably true for all of us when it comes to a sport, at least. Many of you in here, uh, you know, watching soccer, you'd rather watch paint dry than watch soccer. You know, I, I, maybe for you it's football. You don't understand a single thing about football, and so when football's on, you're just totally uninterested, never played football, don't have anything to do with football, don't understand why they're blowing the whistle or throwing the flags in football, so you just don't watch it. So I, we're probably all like that. As individuals, we, we could probably rank our favorite sport to watch to the sport we would le is our least favorite to watch. But engaging in the sport is something entirely different. Even if you don't like watching the sport, it's likely you would at least enjoy engaging in the sport, playing the sport. I mean, if all of us, if it, if it wasn't like eight degrees outside right now, and instead it was a 70 degree sunny day and the grass was green and I put out some of those rubber bases and we got a wiffle ball set and I invited us all out to make teams and play wiffle ball. Almost everybody in here, regardless of how much you know about baseball, how much you love to watch baseball or not, you would enjoy playing baseball. You would get out there. Matter of fact, I know you would because just this last fall we had our, our fall picnic and we got a big a wiffle ball game going and everybody young and old was out there playing wiffle ball and we had an absolute blast because playing 
the sport and watching the sport are two totally different experiences. When the fly ball's coming to you, that's exciting. When you're the one up to bat and you're taking a hack at the wiffle ball, that's fun. Everybody wants to bat. Everybody wants a shot at it. It's more exciting that way. It's more engaging. I'm bringing this up to say this is, this is a way that we can think about church and whether or not we get something out of this experience or not. Some people come to church and they only ever just observe. Other people come to church and they actually participate. So if you come to this worship service, you come to church today, and this is only ever something that you observe, I can totally understand why this feels like a hassle to you. I can totally understand when you say, man, church is just boring. Because if you're only here just to observe from afar, then that, that show gets old, right? For many people, I think church just doesn't feel worthwhile because they haven't found this meaningful way to engage in what church is and what we're doing. They don't really know how to participate rather than just observe. And so that's what I want us to think about today in all of these weeks in which we're studying corporate worship. I'm trying to increase the value that we place on these different components of the service so that we would know how to engage them and not just watch them from afar like some show that's on TV. And today, we're talking about something that I think is perhaps the easiest thing to just observe and not participate in, and that's corporate prayer. We incorporate prayer into our worship service all throughout from the beginning to the end. And it's the easiest thing in the world to do to not engage or participate in every single one of those prayers and not engage in what it was designed to do. So, you know, if you're, if, if you're just here to see, you know, what people look like when they're singing, if you're just here to see if the pastor can hit a home run with his sermon and try not to spill your coffee, uh, it's not, you're not going to get much out of this. But if you're here to actually seize those opportunities and those different aspects of the service like prayer and actually participate in them, in them this gathering every single week is going to feel like a gift. It's going to feel like a double gift to you. This is something that God has provided us, and it's designed to change how we live, how we think. There are so many benefits uh, to participating not just observing, but participating in church. This is one of my beefs with the megachurches of today and a lot of the attractional church model that they adopt. Uh, for a lot of churches, it's just like, we just need to grow, grow, grow. You've, you hear me harp on this routinely, and, and I think it's important to talk about. If we're just about grow, 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 you know, if you're not, shrink, if you're not growing, you're shrinking, so you got to grow, grow, grow. You can really trick yourself into turning what this is into only or exclusively something that we just observe. I mean, you think about the megachurches and the show that they can produce on stage. It really is impressive. The production level at some of these megachurches, they are, they are off the charts impressive. I mean... It is, it's wild. Uh, several of you, here's an example of this. Several of you sent me over Christmas break, uh, it, was, it was a video or a reel 
of footage from a Dallas megachurch that did a Christmas performance and it went viral. They did like a Christmas Eve production and it went so viral that everybody was sharing it online. And it was because the production level was just like off the charts. They had like this, um, they, I, I actually searched for it and I think Tony even sent me an article about it. This church, they invested $250,000 into a cable system that attached to the ceiling of their sanctuary so that people could fly around and do all these sorts of things as a part of the show, a part of the Christmas Eve service. I mean, it, it, it rivals something that you would see like in Las Vegas on a show on the strip or something like that. It's, a, it's, it's so impressive. And so you, you had like these drummer boys with lights all over them, suspended from the ceiling, going up and down and, and, and playing their snare drum. You had angels flying across the room. The pastor came in from the, the rafters to the stage like Tinkerbell or something. I don't know what was going on there. And it was like, I mean, you couldn't deny that the production level was impressive. It really was a neat show that they put on. But I think what happens whenever these megachurches do this is they inadvertently turn church into this spectator sport and give everyone the wrong idea of what we're even trying to do here. And the reality of those churches, if you really look into the numbers and you really dig into what happens at those megachurches, while they have hundreds and hundreds of new people coming in the front door every single week, they have hundreds and hundreds of people who have been there for a while and they're over it going out the back door every single week. And so what you find is in those megachurches and in churches that are over, you know, a couple thousand people is yet you have a new couple thousand people about every three to five years. Because what was impressive at one point in time eventually just gets old. The show, no matter how good it is, no matter how much we, we pump into the production, no matter how amazing, no matter what the wow factor is, you're going to be over it before long. For the same reason, you know, we're, you know we get over stuff like Star Wars, as great as it is. <laughs> you know, like, except Ben. Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I just happened to make eye contact with him when I said that. Oh, my. So... We want to make sure that this corporate worship experience is something that we understand and engage in in a way that isn't merely something we observe. We want to participate in it. So why I say that corporate prayer is something that's easy to gloss over is because if we're not careful with prayer, with praying with one another in the service, it can merely be seen as this like basic formality of the service. Well, it's time to start church. What do we do? Oh, well, we pray. Oh, well, let's see. It's time to transition the band off the stage and the pastor onto the stage. What are we supposed to do right now? Oh, we'll just pray, and that'll give us time to do that. It's time to go home. How do we all know it's time to go home? Well, we'll just pray, and, and, I'll, and the pastor will pray, and then that'll, that'll alert me and my sensors that it's time to get up and go home. And so if we're not careful, that's all prayer can amount to in a church service. Uh, but if we, if we let prayer merely exist like that, like that, we'll cheapen it. I think another reason we cheapen it is because when we think of prayer, we tend to think of that which is something that's exclusively between God and I. It's this one-on-one -on -one sort of experience. We tend to think of prayer primarily as that between just me and God, or just you and Jesus. But when we look into Scripture, and if we just... If we just took Scripture and the examples of Scripture alone, what we find is that corporate prayer is something that's even more common than private prayer. 
even how people in the Bible thought about prayer and when they prayed. It's typically done together. This is something that God's people have always done. You go back to the very beginning of the Bible and, and, and right out the gate, you look, look in Exodus and one of the most famous stories in all of the Bible is when the Israelites are enslaved to the Egyptians. And what are they doing? Well, it says there in Exodus chapter 2 that they were collectively, corporately crying out to God, praying together to God for deliverance. You look through all of the Psalms. I mean, the, the Psalms are it's just one big long prayer. Different prayers for different things. They were, they were crafted and designed for you and I to utilize in our communication with God, in our interaction with Him, in prayer. So when you're reading through the Psalms, you, you, see, that you see the author of those Psalms pouring out their hearts to God. And when we read through those and pray through those, we collectively pour our hearts out to God. You see the psalms that give thanks to God and teach us how to thank God. You see psalms that are about asking God for help and teaching us how to ask God for help. And you see psalms that are about revival, psalms that are about redemption. All throughout the Old Testament, people are collectively and corporately praying to God and crying out to God. Even in that passage of Nehemiah that we covered last month when we talked about the, the, how we prioritize God's word in our service, you see, when Nehemiah and Ezra were working towards building back Jerusalem after a time of, of coming out of, of exile, one of the first things they do is teach God's people his word, they prioritize it, and then they collectively, corporately start praying. They're, they're, they were prayers of repentance, corporate prayers of repentance. They were prayers of confession. Then, of course, you move to the New Testament, and nothing's different. You see people, God's people, praying collectively. And so I, I asked you earlier to, to turn to Matthew 6. This is probably what we think of most. If you had to say, well, you know, where do we go to find a corporate prayer in Scripture? Well, there are tons of places to go to, but this is the most obvious one, right? Because when you think of corporate prayer in church, at a church service, you think of the Lord's prayer. This is what God's people do when they gather. There are, some, there are some churches that every single Sunday morning that they ever get together, a part of the service is to recite the Lord's Prayer because it's Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray. And so when we gather together corporately, it makes perfect sense, doesn't it? We're going to recite this prayer that Jesus told his disciples. But the irony of that is that when you go study about this prayer in Matthew chapter 6, you'll see that in its context, he's talking about private prayer. The one prayer that we say publicly together with one another, Jesus is, is teaching them about private prayer and not public prayer. Let me show you back in, in Matthew 6. Look at, look at verse 5 where it starts leading up to that prayer. Here's Jesus, here's Jesus uh, harping on the Pharisees as he often did. In verse 5 it starts by saying, And when you pray... You must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners, that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go, and, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. 
He continues in verse 7. It didn't get any more private than that, right? It's private prayer. Verse 7, and, and when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. There are so many things to learn in that prayer. And we spent an entire series just talking about that specific prayer and what it teaches us. So many things can be overlooked in that prayer. But I think the one thing that is the most overlooked thing in that prayer is that even when we're in private prayer, we should have this corporate worship mindset. Isn't that profound? Even when you go in that room and you shut the door and it's just you and God, you're on your knees and you're praying to him, you should be thinking about us and him. That's, that's where your mind should be. Our Father. Our, our Father. Give us this daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Lead us not into temptation. Deliver us from the evil one. We should have this corporate mindset even when we're praying in the closet where no one else is at and it's just you. It's profound. But this is how we are taught to pray. Even when we are alone, we should never forget that we are a part of the body of Christ. We are in this together. I think it's Jesus' way of saying, you know, we, he, he's, not, he's not against corporate prayer. He's all for it. But even when you're alone, we should be thinking about one another and praying for us. We are God's people. It's how we should identify as believers. It's not just this relationship we have with God. It's this relationship we have with all of his people and God. So Jesus isn't against corporate prayer. It's very clear there when you see him, uh, what he's teaching before the Lord's Prayer. He's against praying in public just to be admired, just to be impressive. He's against the kind of public prayers that are uh, just a bunch of empty phrases like the Gentiles, like the pagans. You're just saying, you're chanting, repeating things over and over and over again, thinking it's going to count. Think it's going to count if I say it the 105th time. It'll really count. I, and I'm just going to, uh, you know, overwhelm God with my prayer. Jesus is, he, he hates that stuff. But he's definitely not against praying together. You look at all of the, the prayers in Scripture whenever it came to Jesus, his most famous prayer, the high priestly prayer. It's in John 17, a great passage of Scripture to study. And the high priestly prayer, that's recorded there because he wasn't alone. He was within earshot of his disciples. They were all praying. That's how John was able to write it down. He heard it. Even when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, and, and he was so stressed out there, he was sweating blood. Even in that moment, he wasn't alone. Even in that moment where he's like, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours, yours be done. Luke, in that same passage, goes out of his way to say, we were a stone's throw away from Jesus as he was praying that. Because he wasn't alone. They were all there. They all went there to pray specifically even though they were having a hard time staying awake. But prayer is meant primarily, I think, to be something that is done together with God's people. 
And the examples of this just continue after the time, after Jesus' ascension into heaven, when you look in the Acts of the Apostles, it's just like one big prayer meeting. People constantly gathering together to pray. Right out the gate in Acts chapter 1, they've got to replace Judas. What are we going to do? Well, we're going to pray about it. In Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit falls on the people of God. What happens? It says that they were devoted to prayer. In Acts chapter 4, they gathered together. They were starting to, to, to be persecuted by the Jewish councils and things like that. And the people. And so they, they got everyone together, all the Christians together. We need to pray. Here's what we need to do in light of what's going on. We need to pray together. In Acts chapter 4, this is your homework text that you know I love to assign. If you need devotional time and you want to read a corporate prayer, read Acts chapter 4, verses 23 through 31. Acts 4, 23 through 31. You see the people of God coming together corporately to pray. Praying for boldness. Praying for protection. Later on in Acts, you see Peter released from prison miraculously by an angel, right? And so when he gets out of prison, he goes to find the other Christians. What are they doing when he finds them? They're in a prayer meeting. They're praying together. That's what he catches them doing. And then inevitably joins in on that prayer time. Later in Acts, in Acts 13, you see these three different missionary journeys that the Apostle Paul takes in, in planting these new churches. And, and each and every time, they would be at Antioch to start this missionary journey, and, and they would stop and fast and pray before that missionary journey began, corporately, together. Whenever they would establish a new church, Paul would invest in them in a, in a year or two, maybe three years. And, and after he would uh, be finished with his mission there, he would establish leaders, elders and deacons of those churches. And the way that he would do that is he would gather the church together and they would pray for those leaders. Later you see Paul and Barnabas in prison in Acts. And what are they doing when they're in prison? What do you do when you're in jail? What? You pray and sing hymns, duh. That's what they were doing when they were... It's just hard to miss the frequency at which corporate prayer takes place whenever you're reading through the Bible. God's people in the Old Testament, corporate prayer was a big part of who they were. It was a routine thing for the people of God. God's people in the New Testament, it was a routine thing. It's who they were. So right now... If we want to live out this legacy of the people of God, if we want to have any continuity with the people of God over the course of human history, then we need to pray together. Corporate prayer is a part of our identity. It's this massive, massive benefit. It's something we should be known for. Even when Paul would write to some of those churches, like the church at Ephesus, he would say to them, and this is out of 1 Timothy chapter 2, I desire that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. When we examine ourselves in the state of the church today, are we more known for anger and quarreling or for prayer? I'm afraid to even answer that. This is what we should be known for. We don't want to showboat it. This isn't uh, something that is about us. But nonetheless, it should be something that's very obvious about us. We want to join together in corporate prayer routinely in our lives because that's how God designed this to take place. So there's, there's many practical benefits to this. 
I think one of the reasons we so consistently see corporate prayer in Scripture is because it's right for every occasion. You can't say that about everything. You know, um, a lot of things that we do don't fit into every context. But when it comes to prayer, it works at any point in time, no matter what we're doing. Like in the greatest aspects of life or the lowest of lows in life, it's time to pray. And prayer works. It makes sense there. When a young family comes to the journey and they have a baby, they're, they're ecstatic. They're, they're, they're excited. And we want to celebrate. How do we do that? How do we show that? We bring them up on the stage and we have a baby dedication. And we, we pray over them because it's a time for prayer. Whenever a young couple wants to get married, this exciting high of life, What's it a time for? It's an occasion for prayer. Every occasion is an occasion for prayer. And so when I officiate a wedding, what I do leading up to that wedding is I meet multiple times with that couple and we pray together. And then the actual ceremony when God's people are gathered together to, to witness that joining together of man and wife, we pray over them. It's a part, one of the most important parts of that service is prayer. Because every occasion in life is an occasion for prayer. When, when, when your life is uncertain or you're sick, you're trying to figure out what to do, you're confused, it's a time for prayer. Whenever, whenever you're in one of those modes in life, maybe survival mode, and you're just trying everything you can, like prayer always fits into that scenario because it's always a time to pray. But when life gets even worse than that, when you're out of ideas, when you're out of things to do, when there's nothing else to do, and you're with a family member who's within hours of breathing their last breath. And I've been in those situ situations many times with families where it's time to die and no one knows what to do or what to say. You're just kind of there. What do we do? Even in that scenario, it's an occasion for prayer. As a matter of fact, that's one of the most comforting and overwhelmingly appropriate things to do in that moment is to just pray with the person who's dying and pray with the family that is about ready to mourn their death. Every occasion when the people of God are gathered is a time for prayer. So the reason that's the case is because in all of those situations from the, the best of the best to the worst of the worst, we need unity and we need peace. And we need something that allows us to put all of those things in proper perspective. Prayer is what makes that attainable. That's what prayer does for us. It recenters our lives on the things that matters, matter most. It reassures our hearts that God is who we have our hope in, regardless of what we are experiencing in this world, good or bad. And so we have this tremendously amazing way to engage with God, and it's by collectively engaging one another as we engage God. It's, it's connecting with each other and God on this really deep spiritual level. And so the worst thing that you can do is to just observe that and not participate in it. And so by this point in time, you may be thinking, oh man, do I, do I not participate in that? I'm starting to question myself now. I come to church and I bow my head and is that good enough? Is that participation? <laughs> and are you questioning yourself right now? Am I crazy? Well, I, I wanted to leave you with five practical tips 
Because A, I, I promised you in every one of these sermons over corporate worship, I wanted to get to a really practical level on every one of these. What do we do in light of knowing what we know in the Bible? I want to give you five practical tips to ensure that you don't just observe prayer, but that you're actually in this prayer with us. Here's number one, and it's uh, painfully obvious <laughs> that this should be number one. Whenever we gather and it's time to pray, make sure you're praying. That's pretty obvious, right? Make sure you're actually praying. That means when the service is beginning and we start this service with prayer, make sure you get ready for that prayer. That's an important thing to do. We came here to worship together. Prayer is one of the things that we do. And so when you get here and it's time to pray, make sure you're praying. Set the conversation aside. Finish up cleaning the coffee you just spilt later. <laughs> that always happens. You know, and pray. It's time to pray, so pray. Focus on what we're doing. Actually listen to the prayer that's being prayed and center your heart on the Lord who is hearing that prayer. Think about what's being said and then when you're done thinking about what's being said and the prayer is over, there's, a, there's something we do as Christians at that point. We say out loud, amen. Because that's, that's an old Hebrew word that means certainty or truth. So you remember back in the 90s when it was really popular when somebody would say something that you agree with? What do you say? Word. We would say that all the time in the 90s. Word. And so you, you occasionally catch a, a Gen Xer, especially like when somebody says something and we agree with that word. Well, the Hebrews were doing that. They were doing that way before it was cool. Like they're, and their, their word for word was amen. It means truth, certainty. Now, when I get done praying today, I'm, don't say word. I'm just saying, I'm warning you right now because I know you guys so well. Amen is the word that we use to agree with that prayer, we're saying truth. We say amen out loud after a prayer because we are expressing the unity and the peace that we have with one another and the agreement that we have with one another. Number two, actively push back against anything else in your mind when we're praying. That's hard. That is really, really hard. That's hard in corporate prayer, but it, it, just as it's hard in private prayer. Are you like me, like when you lay down at night and you're praying, and your head's on your pillow, and you're talking to God, and you're, you're making your requests known to God, and then pretty soon you just, you didn't even end that prayer, man. You just fell asleep with the phone off the hook, right? Like, it didn't work like that, but you know what I'm trying to say. Like, you just, it, the prayer never ended. You just fell asleep. Or maybe in the, in the morning when you try to pray as you're drinking your coffee or whatever, you're praying and you're talking to God, and then you start thinking about all of the things that you need to do that day, and pretty soon all of the things that you need to do that day, those thoughts kind of overwhelm and take over your entire brain to where you're not even praying anymore, and you forgot you were even praying at all. It's hard not to do that. And it's just as hard not to do that whenever we gather together and pray with one another. So whenever we pray, actively fight against that. Prioritize this corporate prayer in such a way that you're like, no, I'm, I don't care how stressed I am about that issue. It's not time for that. I can't solve every problem in the entire world right now because it's time to pray. 
That's, that's the best thing I can do at solving any of those problems is by stopping and praying with believers. That's what it was designed to do, to, to prioritize and put everything in proper perspective. But you've got to push all the other things out of your mind and focus for that to be the case. And you can't responsibly say amen at the end of a prayer if you didn't even comprehend what was said. There are times that I've been in corporate prayer and I didn't agree what was, what was being prayed. And so I especially did not say amen at the end of that prayer. I don't agree with that. They're not getting an amen out of me. But if I agree with that prayer, and it's a good prayer, I should say amen. You should too. We're not trying to, to attract attention or to be seen. This is what we do as God's people. I agree with that prayer. Amen. We say it out loud. Number three, after... Uh, after our service is done and we close in prayer, a lot of conversations take place, um, but be open to praying even after the service is over. Uh, a lot of times after the church service, um, you never know what kind of week somebody's had. You never know what's going on. Making yourself available to one another, that was the first thing we talked about in this series. That's an important time to make yourself available to one another. Uh, whether it be through practical acts of service or, or just having a conversation, catching up with someone, or, or praying with somebody else. Never be afraid of the awkwardness of prayer time after a service. This is what that occasion is for. Number four is ask for prayer when you're here. It's a really humble, hum, humbling thing to ask someone to pray for you about something, especially when you're face-to-face. -face. But... Let me just tell you, I always gain respect for people who are willing to do that because it tells me stuff, it tells me many things about that person. They believe in the power of prayer and the difference that it makes in our lives, and I respect that. Number two, they are able to put their pride aside. They're not worried if I think they have their entire life together or not. They just know that's what this time is for, and they need prayer, and so they ask for it. I respect that. That's what this is for. They understand the benefit that is before them, and they're reaping it. They're, they are accessing this design that God has for us to communicate with him together. And so after the service is over, if you need to ask for prayer for me, from me or from anybody in here, do that. We should do that here. That's why we gathered here. Do that. And number five, if someone asks you for prayer, they have a request they're making known to you, don't be afraid to pray with them right then and there on the spot. So many times after a church service is over and people will come up and catch up with me or whatever or share a concern with me, I'll pray with them right then and there. And, and sometimes after the service, I've seen even like groups of people huddled having a conversation and then before that conversation's done, they close out that conversation in prayer. Now, if you're ever worried that someone's going to look at you and think that's weird, isn't that funny? Because that's why we're here. Prayer, corporate prayer is one of the reasons we showed up. Can you imagine going to a church, seeing a group of people after the service huddled together to pray, even if it's just two people praying together? Can you imagine looking at them and saying, what are those weirdos doing? Of course we don't think that. Why do you think they showed up? We believe in prayer, and we believe in praying with one another. Don't wor be worried about the awkwardness that's there. Is it awkward to ask someone 
to pray for you, and, and they may pray for you even while there's other people around. Well, yeah, sometimes that may feel awkward. If it's at the checkout line at Walmart, that's super awkward. But it's especially not awkward here. It's part of why we gathered. So it's part of how we worship. It's part of how we engage in one another's lives and talk to God together. So don't be afraid to pray for someone out loud together here in this room, even if we're making noise, setting, tearing stuff down and moving around. Normalize that experience. If it feels weird, just keep doing it until it's not weird anymore. That's why we're here. Prayer is a gift from God. Praying together with other believers is a double gift from God. We should treasure this gift that he has given us. And we should utilize it with one another. Let's do that right now as we go into a time of communion. Lord, what a tremendous blessing it is to be able to talk to you. It's because of the gospel. It's because of what you've done through, to, uh, for us through your son Jesus that we are able to have this relationship with you, this behind-the-curtain relationship. We're able to stand before you and to, uh, and to praise you, thank you, bring our requests to you, ask for your protection. We're able to do this because of you and what you've done for us and how you've designed this to work. What a joy it is to have a, a body of believers to be a part of to where we can experience this together because the truth be told, Lord, all of us in here have experienced those times in which we just don't even have the strength to pray or know what to say or know how to act or know what to do. And in those, in those moments, we can have another believer pray for us who does have the strength to pray and who does have the ability to say the things that we need to be reminded of in prayer to go to you in prayer. Thank you, Lord, for setting this up like that. What a double gift that is for us. Help us to reap the benefits of that, Lord, all to your glory, that we can be a part of your kingdom in an active way. This is not a spectator point, or not, not a spectator sport. This is church. It's something that we do. Help us to pray with one another when we're here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.